Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew, the Magician's Episode Review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we are reviewing Episode 11, The Rattening. Written by Mike Moore, directed by James Conway. Now, Mike Moore did Cheat Day, and James Conway did Word is Bond. IMDb gave this an 8.6, up from last week's 8.3. Cheat Day and Word of Bond, we scored high. Yes. 9.4 for you on cheat day and myself, 9.5. Word is bond, 9.5 for you and myself, 9.1. So no wonder we like this episode as well. Yeah. The synopsis was, Quentin and Julia undertake a difficult journey. Elliot faces mounting catastrophes in Fillory. Margot attempts to fix the bad deal she made, and Penny finds a new ally. Margot kind of attempts. I I don't think she was smooth this episode at all. No. But we will get into that. I personally loved this episode. Even though we had our crew split up again, every quest or journey that they're on was equally as interesting and felt equally as important. Yeah, I agree. I thought the plot continued to move forward at a fast pace and the journeys were compelling. It's very difficult to keep every plot line weighted the same. That's got to be so hard. And they were able to accomplish that. And that sometimes is one of our gripes with this show, but they did perfectly this time. I thought Fillory continued to be the weak link a little bit. I mean, they spent time there, but it wasn't as interesting as the other areas. They're falling back on making it mostly funny, which I don't always agree with. I wish that's where they would bring the magic in more. And you're probably getting sick of me saying that. We did see magic with the depiction of the dragon, and I loved that. The dragon looked amazing. I thought it was really good, and I thought to myself, if they can do a fucking dragon, why can't we do fairies? But I guess they're picking and choosing where they spend their money, their time. It does continue to incorporate these interesting book concepts that I'm really enjoying, and it's also still doing their own twist on things. Enough that I don't fully know where any of the stories are going to wind up, and I really enjoy that. I thought the one downside was... There continues to be some, I'm going to call it confusion on the portrayal of Julia. And I don't know if it's their confusion or mine. I will openly admit that. I find it peculiar that we started talking about it last episode, but really this one, she seems to be back to a bit of old Julia. She has emotions. She's struggling with the decision she's making. She's being self-sacrificing in certain areas. How is this possible without her shade? I agree. Two episodes ago... The new shadeless Julia, it was so evident how different of a person she was. She had one goal in mind. She was going to plow everyone over. And maybe she felt bad enough. But if you don't have a shade, you're not going to feel bad. And I know that they were saying she's remembering. She's trying to remember what it would feel like. Mm. But that can only go so far. But the sacrifices she made this episode really makes me think two things, maybe. One, it might be one of those storylines where the shade, yes, was lost, but still was in her. And it was up to her to gain it back if she really wanted it back. Connected to her somehow still. Yeah. Or two, her being in the vicinity of her shade, she was feeling the emotions that a shade gives you. I wondered that, but it started even before they got into the underworld. 
it was weird. And this is why I say possibly their confusion because it was almost like they were reminding you she still doesn't have a shade and no emotions. In the scene where she talks to Quentin about how they're going to get the teeth. Yeah. And she's ready to steal them from random kids. And they put that very in your face. If there was ambiguity as to she might still have some soul left even without her shade, I wondered why throw that in. And then she made decisions such as the one to leave her own shade behind that were so huge. I can't believe that's even remembering feelings. That's legitimately feeling it. I mean, she was even getting tearful in talking to her shade in that scene. So again... It could be something that I'm not quite understanding about where they're going with this concept yet, and I'm willing to give it that leeway, but it always feels a little bit like the portrayal of Julia is the weak link, and they're not always sure how to handle her. This is the best Julia we've seen so far. Oftentimes in episodes, I'm left feeling like, I don't like this woman. I want to. She's Mm -hmm. a good guy, and I should like her. But she rubs me the wrong way. She does the wrong things all the time. She gets Alice killed. Mm -hmm. She only cares about what she needs to get done, even before she lost her shade. But this Julia was great. She felt friendly and warm when she met her old group in the underworld. Yeah, the free trader group. And then, of course, the sacrifice she makes by bringing Alice's shade instead of her own. Mm -hmm. This is the best... Julia we could ask for. This is the kind of Julia I want on my side. So I'm not complaining. I'm just intrigued and hopefully there is a reason for this. Well, and it is a lot more like Book Julia. And Book Julia did go through a time where she was horribly depressed, thinking there was no way to get through this, but you could feel that it was the pain behind it and there still was this person that we're seeing now underneath all that. I think they went a little too extreme with her in the show in the way they were asking her to depict it so that it felt disjointed. Felt like we were getting a bunch of different kinds of Julia's. They mm-hmm. didn't mesh well together for the sake of the plot. And, and that does leave me feeling like I'm reeling a little yeah. bit. You know, who is the real Julia? Why is this happening? If it's totally defined by the shade or no shade, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But what I find incredibly intriguing, and we can bring this point up later, is what will ultimately happen to her now if there is no retrieving her shade? Will she slide back into that other person? Well, Alice has been without her shade for a longer time than Julia, and her shade was there. Yeah, the thing is, is it's so different with Alice. I'm having trouble knowing if we're supposed to be comparing them or if they can be compared. She didn't just lose her shade and is trying to walk around like a person. She totally transformed into something else, into this Niffin. Um, And that brings me to another question. I'm not even sure that Alice can be saved. This is not the same kind of circumstance we were looking at before. And did Julia just give up her one chance for something that might not even work for Alice? This is silly, but what if there's a spell that can help you grow quicker? So they make her shade just grow up. It's not going to (laughs) happen. And that could just be her now? Yeah. No, I I think it's going to be an interesting storyline. They're going to have to find Niffin Alice, and they're going to have to kind of fight to get Alice to accept the shade, maybe? Yeah, you know she's not going to want to do that no. if she's now off making her own crazy magic and that's all she cares about. Maybe Senator Gaines, if he is a good guy now, which we'll get into later, maybe his power will help them to capture Alice and do some kind of magic to cure her. Or maybe, you know, Dean Fogg 
will come in and save the day and do it for them. <laughs> I doubt that very much. But I was thinking the same thing, that if we get Senator Gaines on the side of good, which would be really interesting, and he becomes at least a temporary part of the crew, where could his power help? And might we see him in Fillory even trying to fix things there? We need somebody of a higher power level. And I would love to see him fighting on the side of the crew. Can a god or demigod go to Fillory? It feels like the fox can't go into Fillory. It feels that way, although we haven't gotten specific rules on it yet. They always knew she was safe. Julia was safe when she was in Fillory. Like, you know, the fox can't get you here. Right. But is that because he's bad or because he's a god, you know? I think this is Ember's territory. And there's got to be these rules for the gods, you know? If Unless you're invited or something. I'm totally making this up, but maybe. Yeah, it could be. I have no idea. All right, Jason, I have a fun little trivia fact for you. Do you remember any more of Quentin's name in the TV show? No. Do you remember his last name? No. All right, you got his last name in the TV show, but his full name that comes from the book, so you ready for this? Coldwater. Quentin Makepeace Coldwater. Makepeace? That's like one word as his middle name, Makepeace. This was given to him by his parents? Yep. Huh. That's his full book name. I wonder what that means. It's pretty interesting, right? But is he the peacemaker or is he the saver or trying to save? He would love to believe he's the saver, but doesn't feel like it so far, right? That's his ideal role. And I think part of the problem with Quentin is he might be able to more fully realize his potential if he realized he's not supposed to be the hero. There's something else he's supposed to be doing. Maybe make peace with Julia and the rest of the crew. Mm Mm-hmm. Bring them together. I could see that. Okay, let's talk new faces, places, and magic. For faces, of course, we saw Shade Julia and Shade Alice again. We also got the reappearance of the head librarian, but this time we learn her full name is Zelda Schiff. Now, this is great because we've been saying, what is the head librarian's name? And I thought for sure we were missing something, but this was validation that we were right on target and that the magicians listen to us every week (laughs) and they make it a point every episode to... Answer our questions. Well, and it made total sense why you wouldn't want to give away your name. It has so much power here. If anybody could then go look up the book of your life and read all that's in it. Yeah. That's intimidating. And we find out that's not even a possibility for her. Because she moved it. Finally, we have Sylvia, played by Roan Curtis, Penny's new boss, quote unquote, a girl who's being kept in the Netherlands for her own protection at the wishes of her father, who it appears to be is a mob boss. Yeah, if we're going strictly off of what Penny is saying, yes. I didn't particularly think that what she was telling him indicated she was a mob boss. Oh, she heavily insinuated. She, she said he's a businessman. Oh, yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> Code speak. Well, Jay-Z is a businessman, not a businessman. <laughs> But can we believe her? And if we do, who is her father? Is that going to be important to the storyline? I'm kind of wondering how she plays into things. And I was thinking, is she somehow in cahoots with Harriet? Because they have similar goals. Oh, you might be right. Breaking into that poison room. And I think Penny is a little too trusting of her too quickly that the information he's getting from her is accurate. And it's a good idea to pair up with her. Maybe it's not a mob quote unquote, maybe it's a magician gang. Magician's cult or something? Yeah. I like that take on it. Okay, and then for places, we talked about 
the fact that we would be visiting the underworld last time, but we actually got to see it this time. And in Greek mythology, this is, of course, an other world where souls go after death and after life. In the underworld, there's an area where the judges decide where they're going to send the souls of the person. They could either go to Elysium, talk more about that in a minute, the fields of Asphodel, which they call the fields of punishment, but that's more the people walking around that can't remember anything. Oh. They're not in strict punishment, but they're struggling for the rest of eternity, not knowing where they are, how they wound up there. And then you have Tartarus, and that's the really bad place. The hell, if you will. Now, Julia and Q aren't in any of those places at first, right? They're in like a waiting section? It's like a holding period, a a purgatory, much like we talked about and presumed last time. Now, the workers there, they seem miserable. And I can see why. You die and you still have to work? Like, that kind of sucks, right? Yeah, well, that was true, too. There were people that worked in that area in Greek mythology. And if this is the place, in fact, they're being kept while the judges decide their fate, yeah. they have to keep them complacent, right? Now, it was a little reminiscent, but this had like a, a funny tone to it, like it was kind of a shitty place. Like it was old school. They didn't update anything. There's bowling. There was a museum. Yep. But defending your life, it's similar to that, but defending your life was, it was like a purgatory. You have to go on trial, defend your living life to see if you move on or you have to go back and try again. But that was beautiful. It was also sort of a paradise. I always remember, and I'm never going to forget this. It's so funny. And it speaks volumes about me. The thought of having the best food ever, the tasting everything. You're never full and you never get fat. Yep. That's my dream. I loved that movie. I would be like, can you just leave me here? (laughs) I don't need to go anywhere. Well, I guess if you saw Elysium, you'd probably change your mind. This was a place for the especially distinguished and souls that dwelled here had an easy afterlife with no labors. But it wasn't the ultimate, actually. If you were granted Elysium, you could choose to go there and spend the rest of your time there or be reborn. If you chose to be reborn and achieved Elysium three times, then you could go to live on the Isles of the Blessed. And that truly was paradise. And this is a separate island. Yeah, they were off of Elysium. So you had Elysium was kind of like easy street, but Isles of the Blessed was heaven. Well, how do you get there? Is it like you did your Hail Marys every weekend? It was a lot of Greek heroes and demigods that did good in the world, uh, achieved heroic acts, were self-sacrificing. But the actual question of how do you physically get there is one we'll talk about later. I found it interesting. They just avoided that, Mm -hmm. that Quentin and Julia wound up in Elysium. But that's not a separate island. No, but it would still be incredibly difficult to get there. There's guards, there's all sorts of things going on. In my view of this Elysium, at least, they made it look like only shades were there. All those children were shades. Right, which wouldn't be. And they were miracle makers. So they were actually working, essentially. They were having fun doing it. Yeah, but they wanted to. And that could just be one building in Elysium, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting how they depicted that, though, in coming into creatures. I put Persephone here. She's not really a person. She's a god or a goddess. We found out she actually is Our Lady Underground. Yeah. And she is the one whose house all these kids are living in. This is one of the many things I loved about this episode. 
we had so many reveals on storylines from the past that really was like, bing, oh, that's amazing. Mm. Wow, I didn't even, you know? So this was one of them, like, oh, she is real. Then why the fuck, you know? And then we got that answer, too. Why, why was the fox being her? Why, you know, all those questions. What gets me is we have Fillory with a god there that's supposed to be looking over everyone who is missing. Mm-hmm. We have the underworld with a god there. This is her zone, right? Yeah. Well, hers in Haiti. It's really Hades, but she's his wife. And she's been missing for how many years? A long time. They just said a while. And everyone's just trying to do their best. It seems like they're backed up. Maybe they're backed up because she's missing, or maybe it's the DMV, so they're always backed up. But again, I love and I hate. I mean, I love the fact that this is a story trope, but I hate the fact that this is true. It seems like the gods are always selfish, self-centered, and don't give a shit about the humans. Yeah, and it's the people that have to do the heavy lifting, right? All those stories that bring in Greek mythology, like Percy Jackson. It's the demigods who are nowhere near as prepared that have to go fight their battles and be the hero. And feel the pain. I do really love Greek mythology, though, and I love when stories incorporate these things. This was not a prominent area in the Lev Grossman novels, so I thought it was great they decided to pull it in. And I just wanted to talk for a minute or two about Hades and Persephone and the underworld. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with it, but in case you're not. Speaking of Greek, I don't know if one of our main clatchers, Oren, is watching this show. Mm. I think he said he was going to try to catch up. but He just wrote to us recently. Oh, good. So we did catch up. So this will be perfect for him because he was the one that was on the Greek tip for Westworld. Yeah. So this is for you. Let's start with when the three brothers divided the world amongst themselves. You had Zeus, who received the heavens. Poseidon, his domain was the sea. And Hades ruled over the underworld. And then, of course, the earth itself was divided amongst the three. And Persephone is Hades' wife. So she was the daughter of Demeter, the goddess of the harvest, and Zeus. The story goes, Persephone was abducted by Hades, who desired a wife. When she was gathering flowers one day, she was entranced by a Narcissus flower to lure her. When she picked it, the earth suddenly opened up. Hades appeared in a golden chariot, seduced and carried Persephone off into the underworld. This created a lot of hubbub. (laughs) Demeter roamed the earth looking for her daughter until she found out that Zeus had actually given Hades permission to abduct Persephone and take her as a wife. She became so enraged at Zeus, she stopped growing harvests on the earth and no crops would grow. To soothe her, Zeus sent Hermes to the underworld to take Persephone and bring her back to her mother. However, before Hermes could do so, she was tricked by Hades into eating six pomegranate seeds and thus forever tied to the underworld. Why do the seeds tire? The pomegranates are the fruit of the underworld, so if you eat it, you will be linked forever tied to that. And she had to spend a third of each year, the winter months there, and she could spend her remaining time with the gods above. And whenever she went back to the underworld, the crops ceased to grow. So this was our original explanation of the seasons. Ah. Exactly. Now, Homer described her as a formidable, venerable, majestic queen of the shades. I love the wording there. Who carries into effect the curses of men upon the souls of the dead. So Hades issues it, but she carries it out. She was worshipped in a lot of the stories. Her cults included agrarian magic, dancing, and rituals, and priests used special vessels, holy symbols, and rhymes in their worship of her. 
sounding very much like Our Lady Underground. Yeah. And funny how we didn't put it together in the first place. Of course, Our Lady Underground is going to be Persephone, but I never did. Her name is spelled like Persephone. Yes. So there's going to be a hundred times where I say Persephone. (laughs) But think Persephone is so beautiful, right? I love that name. And they're following very true to the myths. I really enjoy that. For instance, when you first arrive in the underworld, your soul is separated Mm -hmm. and brought down there like you see with the people that are waiting. And with the dragon. And yeah, that's exactly what happened to Quentin and Julia. All right, back to our... Faces, places, and magic, we are down to our spells. We saw the extraction spell that Julia used to remove Quentin's baby tooth. Funny, we'll get into that. Sphincter magic, yeah, as Penny coins it, a new and difficult kind of magic he's learning so he can cast spells without using his hands. Inceptisex, a way that Penny and Katie have figured out to have sex in their psychic dreams. The ratting. The curse that was put on Whitespire, which turned half the castle into rats and is wreaking all sorts of other havoc. And a special Florian spell that Elliot used to turn Josh back from a rat into a human, and it took him 50 straight minutes of casting. That's a tough spell, whatever that was. How did he know that was Josh as a rat? (laughs) That is a really good question. They said they were looking for Fen at one point, right? They were like, she's got to be around here somewhere. Yeah, I wonder. Time to get into our plot. We open up with Q and Julia searching a city street and finding a grate that's emitting energy. The old reveals itself to the new with the fall of milk teeth, which they determine is baby teeth. Julia suggests stealing them first until Q admits he has a molar that never came through. So she uses that extraction spell without a second thought. And it works. The grate flies off and they go down to find the ancient one. Okay. So I don't know. Tell me if I missed this. How did they know where to go? To get to that street in the first place? I have no idea. I'm assuming we've seen them use tracking spells about a million times. Maybe that's what they did. And this must have been painful because he said he had a molar that never came in, meaning like it was deep within his gums. (laughs) Yep. And she just went whoop. (laughs) And now he's really got to worry about air pockets, right? Isn't that one of the issues when you get your molars taken out? Dry sockets. Dry sockets, yeah. And I had it and it's horrible. (laughs) Now, I do see that this show doesn't like to spend time on finding things, yeah. which I guess can be a little boring. And it really annoyed me earlier in the season when Julia and Katie were looking for Senator Gaines' mom. Mm-hmm. And it really annoyed me the way they did that. But this time, maybe because this was so packed full of stuff, it didn't bother me as much because I was, well, maybe because I was excited to see the dragon. So I was like a little child, like, dragon! Well, honestly, <laughs> they didn't even bother with it this time. And I think if you're not going to do it justice, it is better to just wind up there. Mm. Oh, here's the great little thing we'll get right in. Um, just get you to the action. Yeah, but I mean, even the fact that they go down. Okay, so they go into the sewer and then moments later, there's the dragon. You know, maybe it would have been cool if... Remember in Percy Jackson when he had to go underground and there was tunnels and it was like a maze, a labyrinth to get to the god of, I forget the god's name. Yeah, I'm I'm laughing because it actually is like this in the books. Oh, okay. I won't give too much away, but for those of you who have read, this I think is supposed to be the Venetian dragon and it lives underwater. There's only a few still left in existence. And supposedly, if you can get it to talk to you, they can do crazy things for you. 
They can help you with all sorts of things, but normally they wouldn't want to. There's an elaborate ritual, things they have to bring. They have to jump into the waters of Venice, into the canal at a certain time of night, and oh, then wow. hope that the dragon's going to come and deign to speak with you. But maybe for the show's sake, it would have been too much time to do that. Uh, yeah. But it could have been something cool. I remember all the adventures Percy Jackson had to go through. Like every room was a test mm-hmm. just to get there. And Josh was actually the one that told them about the dragon in the books. Oh. Well, anyway, speaking of, the Ancient One we see is a large underground serpent dragon that collects things. I thought that was kind of a cool twist. Yeah, I like that. And she can send them to the underworld, but requires a gift, the button. Oh, that's more than a gift. Okay. Jesus. We have finally raised the stakes. There are real ramifications here. The crew actually has to give up something meaningful in order to accomplish their quest. And probably the worst thing they could have asked for was the button. I don't think I would have given the button away for anything. Yeah. And here's the thing. Julia was the one that said you shouldn't give away your button. Mm-hmm. Caring for Quentin. Because this is what Quentin has been pining for his whole life. To find Fillory. And, and we've talked about this. Once he found it, he never wanted to really be there. But this is a big sacrifice. And I love how he's like... Okay, but can I borrow it sometimes? <laughs> His reaction to the dragon was great. And this is the first instance I was speaking of when I said Julia started to be self-sacrificing before she even came into proximity with her shade. And, you know, it's not even about just the selfish reason of wanting to get back to Fillory. They have friends there now who need their help. Fillory itself is in danger. Unless you know for sure There's another way to do it, and you'll be able to figure it out. I don't think I would give that button up. There must be something else. It's always like we have to do this or else. You know, when they've spent all of this time looking for answers, you think they could continue to spend more time. She does tell them, though, if Q wishes to return to Fillory, he must find other means, and that the first door remains open. And I really don't know what that means. I'm I'm very curious... Maybe we can ask this from our Clatchers. What is the first door? I'm thinking about when they went back in time. Jane went through a Doctor Who-ish but red telephone booth. Yeah, so that was one way. The first way was that they took the button to the Netherlands. Right. Penny has traveled them. None of these really feel like the first door. I think she means the first door ever. Okay. To Fillory. Oh. And we would have no idea. So they'll have to find their way back. That's a, that's adventurous. That's fun. That could be cool if they find it. <laughs> so Clatchers, if you have any other ideas, let us know. Email us or Twitter at CKC Podcast. Did you notice when he put the button down that there were a pair of glasses there that looked like Harry Potter glasses? No. Now I know I had like magic and dragons on my brain, so maybe that's why, but... It looked like a Harry Potter's glasses right there. Oh, that's so cool. I tried to see what everything else was. I paused it, but nothing looked familiar to me, at least. Well, that would be cool if she's hoarding all magical items. That'd be awesome. Yeah. A wand, a pair of glasses, a button. Now, this makes sense because almost every depiction of dragons, they're hoarding, hoarding gold Mm. that they are protecting. You know, it's like uh, their animal instinct is to hoard and protect. Mm Mm-hmm. So this, this dragon wants uh, magical items. Oh, maybe they can find another magical item that she'd want more. Trade it to get the button back. Maybe an invisible cloak. <laughs> so she explains about this traveling to the underworld thing. 
their bodies will remain here, but their souls will travel. And they'll have 24 hours or else she will eat them. She's a dragon after all. I love that. I'll just sit and wait. No, I'll eat you. I'm, fu- I'm a fucking <laughs> dragon. What do you expect? And then when they're leaving, she says, fucking millennials. <laughs> so hilarious. I'm, I know I'm easy, but uh, I, I love that. It was cute. The dragon was so cool. Like They could have gone the atypical dragon who's just like deep voiced and what do you want? But it was a woman who swore and who had attitude and, and sass. Mm-hmm. It was perfect. The dragons were interesting in the books too. I always liked them. And we do see them disconnect their souls. They're transported and they realize they are in an elevator that takes them to a waiting room lobby, much like a hotel where they're greeted by a bellhop and he tells them to take a number. And it's like a deli counter number. It's hilarious. Except it's probably numbers 1,000 something million. They have to wait forever. They were number 173. Oh, that's not too bad. It probably just re-ups back to zero every day. Well, Richard will find out for us exactly how many numbers are in there. Oh, that's true. <laughs> Does this ever run out? <laughs> I'm going to hold my comments because that was my favorite scene. Over to Fillory, King Idri arrives at the castle to find Elliot stressed over the failed grand welcome. Idri says he doesn't care about the ceremony and just came there for Elliot. He has to go somewhere alone so they can get to know each other better. Oh, boy. Now, this is the first time you've told me that you don't know if you trust King Idri. And I was like, no, I think this is exactly what they wanted. But the way he was acting, I don't know, maybe it was just he was horny. It didn't feel sexy. It felt creepy. And controlling. Like he was trying to manipulate Elliot and he knew Elliot's weak spot was for a good looking man. I think that's exactly what it was. And I thought at first this whole thing was going to be caused by Idri until I saw he was turned into a rat also. So not it. Just the way he acted and he didn't really show that he cared. Like I would have still been like, this doesn't matter to me, but this is amazing that you did this. It means so much. And I would go to Fen and be like, thank you. Like being proper instead of just bouncing. And he leaves Fen. He was a little... Oh, Fen wasn't there. It was Margo. That's right. Fen was already missing. My bad. But he was a little, you're right, a little scary almost. Maybe I'm a sap, but I felt really sad that he's going to have a wedding and none of his crew is there except for Margo. And he doesn't feel remorse about the fact that he's forced to take care of this big undertaking alone with Margo. And none of his friends are there. Penny never comes. Quentin's never there. And they helped Quentin his first year so much. They were there for him. Elliot has done a lot and given up almost everything he cares about without being self-pitying nearly at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, his whole demeanor is (laughs) self-pity. But But that's just, that's like funny how he is. Not for serious the way Quentin gets when things don't go his way. Back to the underworld, Quentin and Julia watch a welcome video, which says they designed this area for a comfortable transition until they are ready to move on. They will, so ev- they will eventually be placed with their karmic circle to make things easier. While watching, they see a man without a shade roughly taken away and decide not to tell the bellhops about Julia. The desk man assures them all shades are safe and protected for eternity, but unlikely to be reunited with their bodies, especially after a long absence. And this is actually exactly what you said last episode. And it w- we were talking about what is the danger going to be, that they can't find their shades or they go to the under-underworld. 
you said maybe it's just a matter of time. If they're away too long, they won't reconnect. Right. Pieces won't fit anymore. And it feels like that wouldn't work. So they're keeping the shades away on purpose because they wouldn't be able to fuse back with their body, I guess. I, I love this scene because it was comical. I got a DMV feeling, and, mm-hmm. which is, has to do a lot with cars most of the time, right? And the video felt like, remember when you had to take your course to, t- to get your license? There was that corny video. Yeah. And then there was the drinking driving video. Just very low budget, very corny and cheesy. That's exactly what this video the was people like. people there don't help very much. You have to wait in line forever. It was perfect. And everyone sitting around was just kind of like deadpanned because it's such a shitty <laughs> video. Yeah, except there really was an ominous undertone, this yeah. threatening thing that's going to happen if you tell them. They make it sound so easy. You'll go report to a bellhop if you don't have a shade. But then you get gang busted and pulled out of there. God only knows where you go. Maybe we just take a beat. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of, that's very unforgiving. And I hope that the real underworld is a forgiving environment, especially if it's not your fault that your shade is gone. You shouldn't be hauled away. And it is a rough place in almost every description you read about. However, Hades is also talked about as being a somewhat merciful and just ruler over the underworld. Let's talk about that flyer. Just the perfect cherry on top. When Quentin picks up the flower and and he reads it and it says, don't panic, you're probably not going to hell. (laughs) Yes. It's perfect. Just, Just the perfect topping for that video. I also thought it was interesting. The man scans their IDs and sees they have both died 39 times. He's shocked until he realizes it must be due to a time loop. Our computers don't do well with these. And so now they know their wait's going to be even longer for them to process it. You can go snorkel go to, or an art museum. It's pretty funny. But he says it like, oh yeah, time loop. These things happen. Now, do you think everything's kind of shitty because the God's not there? Like everything's old or is it really, I mean, when they go to the bowling alley and I'm definitely jumping ahead here, it's old, but maybe that's because the type of people that are in there, this is their happy place. Like remembering these old school. No, the way it was described in the book, if they're keeping true to that, is that you're not supposed to be happy here and you're not supposed to want to stay here. This isn't heaven. And there is a chance that you're not a good person and you're not going to Elysium. So you right. don't deserve those kinds of things. This is a holding pattern. They want it to be easy for you to be here, not ask too many questions, just keep you kind of steady okay. until they figure out where you're going and move you on. So in the books, they made it kind of like the shittiest gym <laughs> ever. The sh- shittiest like YMCA? Yeah, volleyball nets that were kind of sagging, balls that were deflated, all sorts of really boring board games that were missing pieces. Everybody was just being lulled into a sense of monotonousness. Hmm. <laughs> I yeah. don't know, just sort Monotony? of... Monotony? Car- yeah, carrying on, not even realizing that they're not happy, but not questioning anything. One thing that I thought was interesting... And for no particular reason is, he says, you're going to have to wait here longer, but don't worry, we'll get you back into your karmic circle. Yeah. So I was like, karmic circle, it's a funny turn of phrase because it doesn't feel very karmic. They meant karmic circle, like your circle of friends. Because later she says, I know where we can find a karmic circle and she takes them to the free trader Beowulf group. Right. So they're going to put you with the people that you share that bond with while you wait. 
Oh, I took it as he was talking about the people that entered at the same time who watched the video at the same time. That's their karmic oh, circle. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, okay. Until we can place you with your karmic circle. So uh, the, the, the people that will make you feel comfortable. Got it. That you'll be cool with while you stay to keep you more relaxed. What about the visual of her a hole in her actual stomach? I thought that was so cool. I thought that was well done. Right? Once you're in the underworld, it's an actual hole that grows. It continues to grow. Yeah. Bigger and bigger. Well, for those who don't have shades. Well, exactly. Now we see Penny working diligently on a form of magic that he's reading about as the head librarian walks up to him. Turns out it's sphincter magic that uses muscles not normally associated with magic. But as usual, he needs to learn on his own. And they tell us it's exceedingly difficult. So this is telling me that they're not going to fix his hands? They're instead going to show him other ways to do magic? Apparently, that's what they mean by fix it. It's bullshit. It's crazy. I, I don't understand how he's not furious about this. Yeah, he's really taking it in strides. He would get so mad at Mayakovsky for every little thing, but this, he's just going with the flow. It really feels like they've borderline brainwashed him, except later he's doing things that are very much against the rules, so we know that can't be. It's also pretty amazing, though. We did not know there was any way to do magic other than using your hands or a wand to cast a spell. Through this method that he's learning, yes, it's weird and gross that he's got to use his butthole, (laughs) but he's able to cast magic almost without doing anything. You know, externally, visibly, it won't look like he's casting magic. It makes me think of how Dumbledore was able to cast magic without using his wand. Right. And, or saying any words out loud as a spell. Yeah. And when Harry saw that, it looked impossible to him. You know, how does he do that? But it's still bullshit. Don't get me wrong. Can you imagine hanging out with Penny and you're like, hey, man, what do you want for dinner? You want to go to Taco Bell? And he's like, nah, man. What if I have to do magic? What if I inadvertently do lots of magic? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Feels very <laughs> unstable. House is on fire. <laughs> Talk about deadly farts. Silent but deadly. And this is when we jump the shark. This is when we're introduced to his supervisor, Sylvia. Mm-hmm. He thought he was going to be a babysitter, of course. And so we see, this is great, the contrast. We see Penny doing what he normally does, which is kind of like intimidating and attitude. And then we are introduced to Sylvia, which we don't know yet, but her attitude is even greater. Yeah, even more brash and immature than him. He'll make a great duo. First, though, back to White Spire, where Elliot explains to Idri that he married Fenn because he had to. He didn't know her at all, and now he doesn't know him either. Idri says there's a way to get to know each other at their most intimate, even though they can't touch each other. It was a little creepy, even though Elliot was into it. Yeah. He blindfolded him, and before they could really begin their fun, Idri's changed into a rat, along with half the castle. Now, we're used to Elliot being the enforcer when it comes to sexuality. And now he's so overshadowed or over... Powered. Powered. That I think that's what you felt was creepy. It's because, like, man, he... I feel like he's getting taken advantage of. Yeah, he's not in charge anymore. And he's kind of into it for a minute, but I don't know where that would have gone if it would have continued. I thought for a second that Idri left and was going to do something bad. Through magic. Yeah. Yeah. Until we saw he was a rat. And then I was like, oh, the ratting. Duh. Yep. 
And Elliot goes to the council and demands of them, bottom line it for me, what the fuck is going on? They say they've never seen this kind of magic before, so Elliot rounds them up for a council meeting. Why are only some of the people turned into rats? And I guess Elliot was trying to figure that out. He was saying, is there, kind of, is there a pattern to mm-hmm. this? And doesn't seem like. No, it doesn't. Or we just don't get what it is yet. In the physical cottage, Katie is napping and having sex with Penny via their psychic dreams, inceptisex, a way for them to be together while he's away in the library. Katie wants to know if he's made any progress on the poison room, but Penny says he has no access because of his low level there. Katie suggests he find the head librarian's book to see if there's information about the room in there, and he thinks that's a good idea. She also tells him the senator went back to work and she saw Reynard in the back of a press photo, dressed in a suit looking like an advisor. So it took me a second to realize that they weren't really with each other until they started saying insection... <clears throat> they named two other things that were hilarious. Well, first it took me a minute to realize she wasn't just regular dreaming. Mm-hmm. That they were actually together. And then, yeah, though, clever way, yet again, we're seeing Penny's power. Even though he doesn't have his hands to cast magic right now, this traveling thing. Yeah. In addition to his psychic abilities, on top of when he does have power, the battle magic he does. He's really, I believe, our most powerful and diverse magician of the group. For God's sakes, he's going to have sphincter magic. They're, they're making light of it with things like that and inceptisex, but if you really stop to think about it, he's on a whole different level. Now, you can say pussy, but you can't say shit or fuck. I will never understand the things you're allowed to say on certain channels. He says she's locked down tighter than a nun's pussy. Mm-hmm. You can even say nun's pussy. Yep. <laughs> Now, I kind of forgot about the senator, to be honest with you, until they brought it up. I was like, oh, shit, that's right. And then I was like, oh, shit, he's back to work? I, for some reason, pictured Reynard taking him to, like, a dungeon or some kind of, like, dark world of his, you know, of the god. And, like, uh, I don't know, teaching him magic and manipulating him. But instead, he brings him right back into the fold, which I kind of understand his plan. Like, he's going to help him grow into the power more and more power, maybe one day become president and then really take over the world. Well, it's exactly what you thought, what we both thought last episode, that he was going to try to manipulate him by appealing to he's a good guy and he can do good things with his magic. It's the only way to manipulate somebody like Gaines. So in D.C., the senator needs one more vote to pass a bill. Reynard is in the room counseling him. He's controlling the employees' minds, which he says it's just like what the senator's been doing the whole time. He just didn't know it. Scary. And Gaines, he was, always thought it was just good luck, even godly-like luck. And this is where we realize that Reynard wants to teach him how to master it. But Gaines is like, that's cheating. And Reynard says, everyone cheats using what they have. But for you, you're using it for good. You know, trying to manipulate him using what he knows. Gaines wants to be a good person. Yeah, and he he's seeing it differently because even when he knew he'd been using it his whole life, it was instinctively. It wasn't an act of will trying to control people. This feels wrong because Reynard's telling him to influence them actively. Yeah. And you can see that Gaines isn't really falling for it or molding into it as much as the fox would love him to. Yep. You know, I I think for a master manipulator, he wasn't as good as I thought he would be. He was too strong. One thing that manipulators are really good at doing, I mean, we talked about it in the past with sociopaths, They have an ability to get anyone to like them that they need, but they do it softly. And and with charm. With charm. 
the fox is more brute force, and it's not a good way to convince someone your ideologies. Because he doesn't really care about converting them. He just wants them to do whatever it is he wants. Now, his son is sort of the byproduct of him and his mother, I suppose. He's a whole breed unto himself that he really wants this to be for good and just a nudge here or there where it needs to tweak circumstance, not to actually change people. Yeah. That puts him off the whole idea about it. And that's what Reynard is trying to teach him to do at the end. He even tells him, all you have to do is look the person in the eye and tell them exactly what you want. Although I really wish I had that. <laughs> I tell my bosses I need a raise. I tell my bosses I only need to come in once a week. Pretty strong power. You know, we talked about it before too, but it seems like even though Reynard's a god and John's a demigod, he appears to be nearly as powerful hmm. as his father. From what we've seen, he's just untrained. That might be the case, or Reynard isn't using his magic to control him. Maybe he can't, but maybe he's trying to do it a different way. Mm -hmm. Who knows? We don't know yet, but we will find out. Well, because it's often the case in the stories, yes, the gods are more powerful, but they miss a lot of the stupid things. So the demigods have the edge. Because they have the human... Yeah, the human component to them. Yeah. But this might come back into play, and I'm jumping again. The fact that he comes in, it took one episode of his storyline, even though it took two episodes because we didn't see him last week, for him to decide, nope, I don't want anything to do with Reynard. Yeah. I'm thinking if this is the case, there's going to come a time where they're going to fight, and then Reynard would take over and make Senator Gaines the bad guy for at least a little while under his spell or something Mm -hmm. similar to that. We'll come back to them. Meanwhile, Julia and Q find the bowling alley where Julia's old friends are from the Free Trader Beowulf group. Julia reunites with Richard. This was such a weird moment, right? You could see how all she can see when she looks at him is Reynard. And it's funny that they actually gave him a jacket with a name tag on as if knowing we might have forgotten what his name was in real life. I kind of did because I was like, the fox, the fox. Wait, what's his real name? What's his real name? Yeah. But as soon as he starts speaking, it's so Richard that she quickly overcomes that and remembers her relationship with human Richard. Did you feel good when you saw him? I felt like this relief because I remember liking Richard. Yes. Now we've grown accustomed to hating that face. And now seeing him and hearing him talk, they made him look softer with his hair and just the way they suited him up. And I was like, oh, yeah, we like this guy. And I kind of felt reunited with him as well. I did, and he acted so well. Now he's doing the acting for both characters, so very different. And we'll talk about his scene coming up, which I thought was fantastic. He's doing a really good job of it. So they tell him they're not dead, and they need his help, the whole group's help, to find Julia's shade. The underworld is massive. There's every ecosystem. Uh, Nearest we can tell, about 2,000 islands built to look like Hawaii. And you went with the bowling alley? And the powers that be are into whatever helps us settle in so that we can move on. Powers that be? Yeah, gods. We were right about them being real. Hades created the underworld, runs it with his wife Persephone. They live in a big house way over here. It's a beautiful area called Elysium. Apparently they used to come and go like clockwork every fall and spring, but a while back they just disappeared. This is what we spoke about, just wondering if it goes back to the original mythology about how they would visit the underworld. 
right. every fall and spring, but then they would go back above ground to be with the rest of the gods the other times, the other part of the year. But Hades would never do that. Yeah. Oh, he would go too? He didn't leave as much as Persephone. Persephone, it was very regular because she wanted to be with her mother, with Demeter. Hades wasn't bound to the underworld. So we said before they split up the actual earth amongst the three because they each had their own dominion and they shared the earth. And so they could come whenever they wanted to. It's just Mm. that Hades got to be sort of brooding and belonged in his realm, felt powerful only when he was there. But they did regular trips, and that makes sense with the plot line, what they're doing now. The question is, since they haven't been in a while, where are they? What are they doing? And who's running the underworld? (laughs) Now, I don't know about you, but it took me a good two clicks to remember who the other two women were. I was like, ooh, why is she talking to her like she knows her? And I was like, oh, wait, we do know them. Well, I realized when they said circle and then we saw Richard, they must have been from Free Trader. No, I don't know if we got name. I think we got names on them at some point, yeah. and I couldn't remember that. But it took me a good. The thing second. was, they wanted you to have this big emotional reunion. We never got to know them that well. Yeah, the but other I, members, right? But I did feel that emotion with Richard. With Richard, certainly, and he's dealing with his own stuff. He said that he's doing all of this to find his son, who they won't tell him anything about because he's flagged as culpable in his death. Now, did we get backstory? Originally, we did, right? A little bit, yeah. Richard told about, Julia about his son? Yeah. Okay, I couldn't recall. It was a deep convo. Why are they all still there? They've been dead for a while now. Why are they still in limbo? For some of them, it takes a while for this to be sorted where they belong. And, I mean, we don't know. Time could move differently here, kind you, of the way it does in Fillory. You may be right. Speaking of time, Richard learns that Julia only has 24 hours to do this. He tells her she's always the one to tell the impossible to go fuck itself. (laughs) And so they come up with a plan. Now, through this whole scene, she seems emotional. Not emotional, but happy to see them. And she seems very empathetic. Again, I forgot she didn't have her shade. Yeah, didn't seem like it, right? This is also the part where they say, don't tell Q that it's always a strike the first week. (laughs) That was funny. Julia says, let him have this one. I keep saying this, but I have to. This show is amazing at sprinkling in little points of humor. I mean, when they first walk into the bowling alley, the way Q's like, Why would anyone want their afterlife to look like a terrible middle school birthday party? And, but the fact that he's afraid to bowl because he got his fingers stuck in a ball yeah. once. I mean, he just can't help himself. He's always the quintessential loser. Yeah. In Whitespire, the fairy appears to Margot and says, He wants to talk? You lying son of a bitch. He turned Fen into a rat along with half the castle. Fen is in her human form, in the fairy realm. And she was taken because you tried to get clever with our deal. So you turned half my staff into snake food? That wasn't the fairies. Well, it sure smells like they're whimsical bullshit. There's another power which you made the mistake of overlooking. You want to be specific or not? A power without logic. A power that acts not for gain, but solely because it can. That's the true danger. Face that, or face the end of your kingdom. Whoa. Yeah. What in the hell power is this? Um, it's Ember. He's been silent, he's been a dick, and who else is going to do it? It's Ember. It sounds bigger than Ember, and darker. Without, I mean, without logic, yeah, that's kind of true for him, but acting solely because it can, I feel like this is even more powerful than Ember. I thought nothing was more powerful than Ember. 
No, he's the god of this world, but remember the world made him. Okay. Not the other way around. So where did the world come from? This insinuates there's something even bigger than that out there. He's just one god ruling one world. I mean, Martin Chatwin was able, through the magic, to become just as powerful as Ember. But who would be mad at him? It can't be mad at him because of what he's doing as a king, because honestly, he's done good. He's fixed a lot of shit. No, that's exactly what the fairy's saying. It's nothing to do with him, and it's not for anything he, she, it wants. It's just because it can. It fucks with people just because it can. Well, I guess you're right. You've definitely made me change my mind there. But the one thing that has got me is when Elliot does get kicked out, that's got to be Ember. It feels like it. But that's not to say there couldn't be more than one force at work here. I mean, we see in Fillory alone, there's Foo Fighters, there's Lorians, there's fairies. There's, there's things we don't know about. of shit we don't know about out there. It might be someone that's mad because of the trees dying. We did say that there was no, there was no real recourse to that happening. This might be it. Yeah, and I mean, they've even insinuated there's tons of other worlds out there, right? The Netherlands has fountains galore that each goes to other places. So this is so much bigger than what we have exposure to. And I actually like the thought, I don't know it for sure, but I like the idea that they're bringing in some of that. Next, Penny tries to charm the head librarian into giving away her name. She tells him inter-office courtship is prohibited. And Penny isn't her type anyway. Oh, God, it was hilarious him flirting with her. She says he's a touch emotionally insecure for which he compensates heavily with boisterousness and foul language. So right on the money. Again, this is them reacting off of our podcast because that's what we've been saying (laughs) to the T. Yeah. And even Sylvia laughs at his disaster. I laughed at this too. And it's funny, this kind of laugh that I get sometimes, it's not off of how humorous it was because it but it was funny it's some it's a deeper kind of laugh i guess it's a understanding and relating as Mm -hmm. far as like we've been saying that you know yeah it was a good perfect scene do you think she's a bad person no i do think she's hiding things from him and a lot of other people she's very smart about what she's revealing and she's not taken in by penny's wiles that typically get him what he wants with any woman yeah As good as that scene was, though, the next is my favorite. This is when we see Richard causing a distraction by entering the lobby and pulling out tons of numbers from the machine. He has a lot of questions. Really, really good acting. The beat he was keeping was like, doom, 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 doom. Thomas, don't call security. (laughs) While they're distracted, Q and Julia slip behind the main desk, pull out the records book, and find those with lost shades are all listed in E. Elysium. The guards take Richard into confinement as they sneak off. I was laughing my ass off. It was great. It was a great scene. He played that so perfectly. And you you kind of forget, man, they're telling him they're taking him away for a while. How long is this going to be? Where is he? What's he going to have to go through? He did it without hesitation for the sake of the plan. What's a few weeks in eternity? And this is all for what Julia needs to accomplish. Meanwhile, he was very busy with his own goals about figuring out his son until she came and he just put that all on hold. You know what? I found it curious, but not in a bad way, that her whole circle didn't bring up what happened, how they died and and being outsmarted. You know, who was that? No questions about it. What happened to you? Yeah. After we all died? Where's Katie? Why didn't you die? Yeah. Good points. 
In a meeting with Cowden, Gaines uses Reynard's tactics and it works to convince the man. But he nearly passes out. He has chest pains. They have to call the doctor. So later, Gaines tries to talk to his wife about the fact that he's not human. He's looking for her genuine support and understanding he needs somebody to share this with. But he inadvertently uses his magic to turn her into the perfect supporting wife. When he realizes what he has done, he feels bad about it. He's too powerful for his own good. He's got to feel bad about it because his whole life was it, I guess you would say, a lie because he was lying to himself, not knowing, right? Does she even love him? That's exactly what it made him think. And that's why he comes to Reynard later. And it's what makes him realize that Reynard is a bad man. This is terrible. And and now he wishes his whole life hadn't been that way. Yeah. So for the first guy, he I guess he overdid it and almost killed him, right? Yeah, because he was doing it purposely. So and he it, was trying very hard because it was his first time. So he was like really trying. Well, it was this strong his whole life without even meaning to do magic that mm-hmm. he's gotten to this point. So this is the first time he's attempted to use it and look what happened. And that means how much further could that go yeah. if he really put it to the test? I, I'm so glad that right now he's turning out to be a good guy. And maybe for selfish reasons, because I want to feel like I'm a good detective. Remember when I looked up his horoscope? Yes. <laughs> and it says exactly the way he is. So I'm hoping that comes true so I can pat myself in the back. He seems to be doing his best with it. He's just learning about all this. Let's not forget it's really new to him. And again, it brings back the magic has its consequences. Mm-hmm. You know. So in essence, to him, this is a curse, not a gift. Yeah. Q and Julia somehow find their way to Elysium and enter a, ma- and enter a, man- a mansion and enter a mansion where all the shades are kept. Kids who are performing minor miracles for those in need on earth. They tell a boy they are looking for shade Julia. She would be brave, funny, probably made friends with some of the most shy, maladjusted <laughs> shades. You know, this part reminded me of The Matrix, the first one when Neo is there to talk to the woman she's kind of like the mother basically and she can read she's the one looking for the next the Mm -hmm. one and there's a kid there that's like you know the spoon's not bending instead you're bending Mm. it just reminded me of that maybe because it was a kid who had this magic and it was very mysterious he seemed they all seem very precocious. They're not actually 12-year-old children, even though that's what they look like. We learn that it's, it's more the essence of a person. It's their truest, purest, best form, and that's why they look like kids. But it was really cool how Quentin inter- interacted with him and very funny. The boy says there is a new girl who's always getting in trouble and sneaking into Miss Persephone's room. The boy tells him they're never supposed to go in there. And you can see the look on their faces. They're like, yeah, that must be me. (laughs) Once they get in there, on the wall, Julia sees a picture of Miss Persephone, who, as we said, hasn't been there in a long time and no one knows where she is, of course. And Julia realizes it's Our Lady Underground and she gets pissed. We were stupid to love you. Uh, That reminded me, oftentimes in our worst times in life, we get mad at whatever God that we believe in. You weren't there for me. Yeah. And it's very human of us. It was. It just feels like I expected Julia to kind of understand more. I mean, she doesn't even know what's happened to this woman or where she's gone or what's going on with her. Her first reaction is just, you abandon everyone. It's like a child yelling at their parent, you weren't there for me. But that's the key word, reaction. 
Yeah. And I'll add emotional reaction. Yeah. But she doesn't have her shade. Exactly. Unless she, you know, she's really close to her shade now, so maybe she's feeling it. But it's been happening since earlier, yeah. right? We've been saying it all episode long. It really doesn't make any sense. <clears throat> yeah. I love the whole storyline of like these shades are there making minor miracles. And I, I love little magical things like that. Mm-hmm. One of the girls in the room was making a flower, right? Yeah, the vase of flowers bloom for a kid who is in the hospital. It's a little obvious, but it'll do its job. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> And we'll come back to them in a minute. Real quick, every episode, especially as we're getting to the end, is opening these new storylines that are more and more interesting. So now I'm like, well, they got to find out what happened to Miss Persephone, mm-hmm. you know, and they got to find out who made the rats. There's so many storylines opening up and I'm not feeling overwhelmed because they're answering some. These are just very intriguing. This is what I was talking about, though. There's so much to tell you and you haven't even scraped the surface mm-hmm. still of book two and what's out there. I'm nervous the rate at which they're opening doors, and I hope that they just keep a steady pace through to season three with all this and do each story justice because you're really going to enjoy it and the way that it will all come together in the end if they're handling it like that. In the council meeting, the members describe the effects of the ratting to the White Spire rulers. There are reports of upside rain, anthills turning to volcanoes, the balmy sea turning to acid, and every chicken in Fillory has laryngitis. <laughs> There's no pattern they can discern except that it's increasing. But who is behind it? It can't be the Lorians. The Foo Fighters are incapacitated. By the way, still? What the hell did Josh give them? <laughs> so Elliot thinks it must be someone in this room. He truthied them. Gave oh. them all truth serum so he could find the answer. This is great because Tick admits to embezzling funds... The other member says he's been using castle guards to run an escort service. And finally, Margot says it was her. She made a deal with the fairies, and she knows where Fen is. Okay, so much to talk about here. One, true feed. I love that. Because <laughs> you know, my type of humor is we'll be hanging out, someone will be talking, and they'll have two words, and I'll combine them to make a funny word. Yep. And normally I'm the only one that laughs, but... Magicians True is famous is for this. Yeah, and this is one of the things I love. Two, I told you the first day we met the council that they were assholes. Remember I said, no, it was even, it was our precast to the show and we were reading about the characters that are going to come and I was like, these council members have been used to having no one to counsel and basically running it themselves. Free reign of the reign. And now they have to fold back into what's going on. Yeah, but I love what's going on here that they are assholes, but they're normal assholes. Yeah, it wasn't too nefarious. Like Elliot is, look, this is the least of our worries. All right, you embezzled some funds. An escort service? Ew, but I kind of give you props. <laughs> the really big shit, the council is not behind. If anything, they're just useless. They have no way to help. Yeah. They're not making anything better. But it's Margot who has really made this ultimate deal with the fairies. Now, I didn't understand, though, she didn't cause the ratting. The fairies didn't even cause the ratting. Why didn't she tell Elliot that? She made it seem like she's behind all of this. I agree with you. If she's been truthied, that means she's not going to hold back any truths. And she knows for a fact the truth is the fairies aren't culpable. And we don't know who is. But she did not relay that. Instead, she talked... uh, The way she... And this isn't her fault, but this is not the way you want to bring it up to Elliot. 
No, and it made it sound even worse than it was. And at this point, if you see he's so upset because you haven't told him the truth up until now, this is the point to get it all out. Don't be holding shit back yeah. anymore. Penny is still trying to figure out the librarian's name by looking at the brown paper lunch bags in the fridge. Yeah, I have to stop you there. There was a lot in there. Are these all librarians? I mean, where are they? We haven't really seen many people in this library. It's a huge, huge building, right? What are, what are they doing all the time, you know? Yeah, up until last episode, we only thought, or at least I only thought there was one librarian there. Yeah, which I guess wouldn't make sense because of how huge it is, but I didn't think of it as being in operation much like any other job where people come and there's brown paper bags. We yeah. don't see interaction. It feels very isolated anytime you see somebody walking through. This is where we see Sylvia just barge into the scene grabs the paper bag, and lets him know that it's Zelda S, and she believes it's Schiff. Mm-hmm. Penny wonders what Sylvia's deal is. She's just a child. Sylvia explains that the Order is protecting her because her dad is a businessman, and he sent her there to keep her safe. Penny thinks she's like Meadow from The Sopranos. Or what do you say, like Mellow or something? And he she's couldn't, like, it's he Meadow. couldn't remember the name. It's Meadow, okay? So this chick is awesome. She's not afraid of him. She has more attitude than him, and mm-hmm. I don't think he knows how to handle that. And she seems pretty powerful and jumping ahead, but with her going and in, incepting into his head, right? Mm-hmm. She's got powers that were not even taught to her by her father, but by her father's friends. Is she going to be good for us or bad for us? That is a question we still do not have answered. Yeah, I don't trust her. By the way, Zelda, awesome name. Okay, Margot begs understanding of Elliot. She tells him she did this to try to save him. But he says he can't risk having to clean up her next mess with everything else he has to deal with. He has her taken to the dungeon, though the nicest room with her coconut oil. (laughs) We said, how is Elliot going to react when he finally finds this out? It's not going to be good. He's going to be upset. And I'm surprised he wasn't more emotional. He kept a level head and said, this is what we need to do. It was so Elliot-like. The writers are so good at making sure that Elliot's personality stays correct. It's so endearing. You know, make sure she gets the coconut oil. I love that. Yeah, I mean, he still loves her. And poor Elliot, right? His only answer for what to do with people when they do things wrong, take him to the dungeon, take him to the dungeon. He really doesn't know how to handle managing problems. He doesn't want to do anything bad to them, <laughs> especially not Margot. Well, this is what's difficult. In normal kingdoms, the prince or the princess learns from their parents how to rule. But in Fillory, it's these humans that come and they are now given this role. No wonder they keep failing Fillory. (laughs) They have no guidance. He should already know, though, that taking them to the dungeon does not work. The Foo Fighters still got their messages out. Julia escaped from the dungeon. It's not a good track record. Now Margot. In Persephone's room, Julia finds Alice's shade. When Q enters with Julia's shade, they all unite. First of all, this was great because it was right before commercial. She says, come out, you know, it's okay. And then you see her face like, and then it goes to commercial. Then when we come back, we realize it's not Julia, it's Alice. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Julia cries to her shade that she hasn't found Reynard yet, but is trying. And it's hard without her. Shade Julia says Shade Alice talks about Q all the time and says he's a good guy, but there's no way to take her with them. Yeah, setting the stage for that issue, which we kind of saw coming. We won't be able to save both. 
but she can't take her with them. But I don't understand why you can't take both. Why is it only can be one? Well, they're not even supposed to be taking one. I don't even know how that's possible. Yeah. So they haven't laid out the clear rules to us, except that we know they can't. Well, I thought, especially at this point, it's been too long. That's why Shade Alice can't go. But it hasn't been too long yet for Shade Julia, and that's why she could take it. But obviously, that's not the case, the way this episode ends. Uh, it was so it was kind of beautiful, this part. Q is forced to face the fact that he lost Alice. Mm-hmm. But it was endearing. He gets to finally speak to Alice, and it's not like speaking to a child. It's an adult Alice, just like you said before. Mm-hmm. And Julia gets to speak to her shade, and the shades almost feel like they have more wisdom. They're comforting our characters. Absolutely. Now, you reminded me that last episode, I had brought this up, the possibility of shade Alice being in the underworld as well. Trying to get a, a twofer. And then you said, but there's no way they would kill yeah. two plot lines with one journey and be able to save both of them. Now, I'm not one to keep score, but we've been kicking ass with this season. Yeah, and I have to reiterate, not stuff that I have book knowledge about. Mm-hmm. You know, I let you guess at that stuff, and then I guess at the stuff that's TV manufacturing. But you have a better track record than I do. Now, I read in the AV Club, and I thought this was really good, so I want to read it to you. The double reveals about Alice's shade work really, really well. All along, there's been a certain synchronicity between her and Julia. There's a reason these are two women Quentin has loved. They're different versions of what being the smartest person in the room does to someone, particularly when they can't get what they want. Alice torments herself by feeling bound to stretch her abilities to their limits because she's convinced she has to do it to save the people she loves. And Julia falls apart when, for the first time in her life, She's not good enough for something. It makes total sense that Quentin's description to the little boy shade can apply to either one of them, and also that Alice is the one who actually got into Persephone's room. Julie is more of a face-to-face troublemaker, while Alice quietly learns just enough to get herself in trouble. I read that entire bit Mm -hmm. and was thinking about bringing it up at some point because I agree it's a beautiful description of what's happening here. And it's so apropos because we thought for sure that was Julia too when the boy shade was describing it. And then you do come to that realization like there are such similarities and no wonder he loves both of them. It leads me to the point and I hate, I hate saying this, but what do they see in Quentin? We can see why he loves them so much. Mm-hmm. But up until now, he is so flawed. He's there for them. That's the biggest thing I can say for him. He is always willing to go and do anything to try to help them. Well, mainly Alice. He, he kind of hasn't really been that way for Julia until recently, mm. but now he's doing the same for her. There's people out there, even in the real world, that are attracted to the flawed. Mm-hmm. And that, that might be the case here. Yeah. And with Julia, we kind of understand because we've talked about how they grew up together. And I'm, I'm hoping it some point we'll get a little more of that you know childhood quentin and julio i think it'll explain the way the relationship has gotten here reynard comes to talk to Gaines about cowden saying he just overwhelmed him a little and it's all worth it but Gaines is most upset about his relationship with his wife and wonders if anything was real he sees that he's been controlling her since the day they met reynard says he must realize that he's different from others because he's not a person And besides, he sensed his place in the world and wants to be president. 
You have always sensed your place. Julia and Katie, they said you did terrible things. I should have looked you up on the spot. You didn't because I gently suggested you don't. It's for your own good, kid. So it's all true. Those poor women. <laughs> Those women were hardly victims. They said they were just trying to summon a little help from some kind of god. They were summoning an evil bitch. He looked me up, says, Trickster, see, that's honest. Yes, I f with the weak. You know what that does? Improves the herd. I help the same little creatures you want to help. It's not surprising you're my son. How else could it be but her? The benevolent Our Lady Underground. Oh, it is all about her power, attention, grinding men and gods into the fuck dirt, and then she leaves. You loved her. <laughs> Yes, there are some things you can't control after all. This is one of the things that I was saying they explained for us. Because once we found out that Persephone was real and that she's missing, I was like, man, maybe the fox killed her and that's why he had her form. But that might not be the case, most likely isn't. It's The fact is, the fox was using her as the bait because of her hate for Persephone. It kind of knocks out two birds with one stone He's getting what he wants, but also he's spoiling the name of Persephone. Because people will think that she did it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she's done him wrong in the past. Badly, somehow. Gods are known to break hearts. That's what they do. They fall in love so passionately where it's like perfect and then they get bored and they move on. What, what must tie into this, and I know it's difficult to get into this area because of the subject matter, but... When you go back to this Greek mythology we were talking about before and the fact that Hades stole Persephone and took her down to the underworld, the story is called The Rape of Persephone because that's uh, apparently really what happened to her. And the fact that Reynard is now taking these defenseless women and raping them must tie back into her original story in some way. That can't be coincidence. I think you're right. Um, making her look bad, I don't know how he would think that because she was the victim of that and now he's she clearly wouldn't be doing that to these women you wouldn't think but he's trying to send a message to her i believe and i'm really interested to find out what the backstory is more between the two of them and if she actually is this bad god that everybody's painting her to be or if more likely we'll get the reveal that we just didn't know enough after 50 straight minutes of casting a special florian spell Elliot was able to turn a naked Josh back to human. Elliot explains why Margot can't help with the revivals. Josh says Elliot does need help, though, and he should delegate to governors or dukes. When he realizes he doesn't have delegates, he says he should have an election and let the people pick, which is smart. It's like the people will love him as well because he's giving them some democracy into it. What do you mean you don't have governors or dukes? I'm really liking Josh more and more. He's great. And Elliot thinks it's brilliant. Democracy can save Fillory. But before he can even high-five Josh, he is transported to the physical cottage, where he tells Todd he thinks he just got kicked out of Fillory. And I was like, what? My jaw dropped. That was so unexpected and beautiful. It was just like, got me excited. And now that does feel more spiteful and immature, like it could have been Ember. You're yeah. stepping on the rules. There is no democracy here. I say who the rulers can be. They have to be children of Earth. They rule it. None of this for the people shit. Plus, the Florians haven't exactly proven themselves capable 
of figuring out what a rule should look like. So I, I could see where that might be him. Although, you know, could be the bigger power too. Well, here's the thing. Just like a god would do, instead of coming and explaining to him, like, you can't do that, blah, blah, blah. He just kicks him out and is spiteful. He should understand, Ember being, that the counsel that he has for him is not explaining this to him. They're not doing their job. So he should step in, either give him a new counsel or sit with him and explain these things to him so Elliot can be a good ruler. Not only that, do you realize what just happened here? Margot was sent to the fairy realm. Elliot was kicked out. There are no rulers in Fillory at present. I thought she was sent to the dungeon. And she takes the potion at the end of the episode. Oh, that's right. That transports her to the fairy realm. Quentin and Julia don't have the button. The oh only person God. that's left in Fillory now Josh. is Josh. Which is kind of cool. <laughs> he seems smart enough. He Hopefully could do it. he can take care of it. But how is everyone going to get back? Now it's not just a Quentin problem. They're all going to have that issue. I mean, Penny is busy in the library. He's normally the first to pick up when there's trouble with the crew, but I think he's distracted with this. Speaking of which, Penny looks for the book on Zelda's shift, but finds it has been relocated to the poison room. As he explains it to Katie psychically, Sylvia tags along and slips in to tell them they need her help to break into the poison room. She's been trying to get in there because she's curious about a few things herself. Plus, they won't have to start from square one if they take her help. This woman is smart, she's witty, and dangerous. She has her own agenda. And I think it's so obvious that I don't understand what's going on that Penny can't see it. She's literally disrupting Penny's deal. Mm -hmm. Disrupted his dream state with Katie. And it looks like she's going to help, but I don't think for the good just like you said. But it's curious, and I'm very intrigued what her storyline's going to be. Who is her father? Why does she want to get in there? Is she working with Harriet? Now, back at the cottage, Todd wakes up Katie because she has a guest, Senator Gaines. Now, when he was waking her up, I thought he was waking her up because Elliot was there. And then Senator Gaines mm, comes in. And I was Because like, Elliot's oh, been showing up at the cottage a lot. This is when he tells Katie, if they're still after Reynard, he wants in. Now, this is curious. I, I've said, I said this earlier. It happened so quick that it's, it can't be over. And I think Reynard maybe will take control of his brain. Or some people have said maybe this is nefarious and Senator Gaines is doing this in Reynard's. But I don't think that's... No. no. I don't think we've seen any proof of that. But you know for sure Reynard knows he's there. He's been watching. He's got nothing else to do. He's watching over his son. He knows he's there and... This doesn't seem safe. And by the way, the whole crew's not together. Is it just going to be Katie and Elliot going after him right now with the senator? We know for sure that the crew's not going to get together to battle Reynard unless there's more time until they actually do it. Yeah, well, they all didn't even really... They weren't on that bandwagon to begin with. That was really Katie and Julia's baby. Yeah. So. But this is Reynard, you know? I think what they should do is take a beat, hopefully... The protective walls are back up and really Oh, well, yeah, explain, that would mean Reynard can't get in. Right, true. Anyhow. But the, really take the time to sit down with the senator, explain everything that's going on so mm-hmm. the senator has the whole idea. Teach him a few things and get to know if he's really going to be the good guy and then go after them. The other council member comes to visit Margot in her cell. He brings her a potion that will transport her to the fairy realm but cautions that few return. But as it is a chance to save Fen and the baby, Margot says he's a pussy, and it's her mess to clean up. 
then takes the potion and disappears. Another great storyline, but I'm wondering how, like, hopefully these, the fairy realm looks awesome. I think his name might be Rafe. I, I couldn't figure out this younger guy that we're starting to see more regularly who's on the council. What is she intended to do? Obviously, these fairies have powers that are beyond fillery. They're able to fix the well, which no one else could do. So these fairies are not someone to mess with. She's going to go alone. It doesn't seem like she has much of a chance here, but Margot frequently looks like she doesn't know what she's getting herself into and then reveals she has a pretty good plan and idea of the magic she's going to use. So I trust that she'll be able to to figure something out, although I do think she's outnumbered. In our final scene in the underworld, Julia tells Quentin they have to leave. He realizes this is why he couldn't make the math work to bring Alice back in the first place. He wasn't factoring in her shade. Shade Alice says there's a portal back to reception in the closet. Q tells her when he comes back for good, he will find her, and they say a tearful goodbye. Julia sends him in through the portal first, and when she follows into the elevator... She has Alice's shade instead of her own. She tells him she knows it's her one shot, but this is what she chooses. The guards pursue them, but they make it into the elevator. I'm very curious where this goes. We know they're going to have to find Nif and Alice again, but how on earth are they going to get this shade to go back in? Hopefully the shade is as wise as she seems. And I wonder, well, we know they have magic, so maybe she's powerful. We don't know how practical, though, that they're if they're able to use it in the real world. And like we say, if it's not too late, if this can even be done because she is a Niffin and not just a regular person, and if they even get out of the underworld. So we only saw them get into the elevator. I don't think it's going to be that easy to escape the underworld with a shade in tow. <laughs> and finally, if they do manage to do all of that, where is that going to leave Julia? And how is she going to survive and make it this way? We'll see if they answer those questions for us next episode. That's it for the plot. But our fillery quest number 11, speaking of shades, was soul searching. It said quick to the underworld and you had to match one of those card games where you match the pictures. Yeah. I actually failed the first time. It was timed this time. Yeah. And I failed. They're up in their game here. Like, Shit. But the second time, the, the cards were in the same spot. So I oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Jason, what do you give episode 11 for your rating? I'm going 9.7 crowns. Wow. You liked it more than the last one. I did. I actually did. I was, what, 9.6 the last one? Yep. Yeah. The adventures were amazing. There's a dragon. Hello. <laughs> and now I'm really intrigued of, like, what happened to Persephone. For example, when Julia spoke to Persephone or the fox before she came and like then it was the fox killing them, maybe that was the real Persephone. That was right before she got... Our Lady Underground? Yeah. Remember huh. she had that... Uh, she was looking in the window and then she came down Yeah, and we and assumed that all of that was fake. Maybe it wasn't. But yeah, you could be right. So after that, that's when the fox... Maybe he took her and he came and then did all that stuff. Or he just reacted so strongly because she was actually answering Julia's call and whatever beef he has with her that we don't know the whole story yeah. there yet. Yes, that's probably one of the areas I'm most interested in also. I'm going to give this episode a 9.5. So you're down two. I mean, I'm, not really. You're I'm, not down. but I'm down just a tick. I mean, 9.5 was the highest I had given up until last episode. Last episode was a standalone for me. It was amazing. So I didn't want to quite go that high, but I mostly liked everything they did here also. 
And who is your MVM? I'm going with the obvious yet again, Julia. Without her shade, she did such a selfless act. And for the first time, I think we get to see what she really feels about Q. Yeah, we were talking about that last episode. The only explanation we could come up with for why she would be somewhat emotional, self-sacrificing, able to do good without her shade was because of having the support of her best friend that she hasn't had for a long time that Q keeps her grounded. And I think that is the only thing really that explains her actions. And it's, it's really nice to see them on the screen together. I'm going with the not obvious for this one. I'm going to choose Richard. Oh, okay. I thought it was an excellent reappearance that I did not see coming. I've been so frustrated with the Reynard thing that I almost grew to hate his face. And I forgot what the real Richard was like. It was wonderful to see him back on screen. His acting was phenomenal. I really enjoyed the distraction scene. And underneath that as well, he made a huge sacrifice in order to help get the group the information. We talked about that. He has his own mission of trying to figure out what happened to his son. And yet he was immediately willing to step up and do that so Julia could find her way to her sheet. You're right. So he did his own sacrificing. Mm. Well, Jason, instead of a character review for this episode, I have something different for you. It was an interview with John McNamara and Sierra Gamble, the creators of our show. They asked them a bunch of questions, some that I thought were things we had been wondering at as well, such as how did they come up with the musical for Elliot and how much Lev Grossman interacts with them as far as coming up with things for the show. So in regard to the musical, John McNamara said, I tried a lot of different songs. It was almost going to be Tonight from West Side Story. The problem is Sondheim writes such specific lyrics to the world he's writing in, you can't have Elliot and Margot singing about the Jets and the Sharks. It would make no (laughs) sense. Les Mis was a really moving and emotionally available number. And he talks a lot about Lev Grossman, how he contributes, he's very involved in everything to do with the TV show. Sierra said, more often he's the guy who asks the really good question. He's so well-versed in fantasy worlds, and he is the progenitor of the world we're running around in. So if something doesn't quite ring true for him or doesn't make sense, if there's a missing dot in connecting two ideas and he asks the question, it's generally a really good clue for us that we should go and take (laughs) another look. Oh, that's good. I'm glad he's very involved. They also talk about how Grossman has given them a lot of leash (laughs) (laughs) and he really trusts them and everything they do. But when they first came to him with the idea of the musical and Les Mis, he said, okay, I trust you guys. I really do. And then when it came out, he said, God damn it, that's like my favorite moment of the season so far. I can't get it out of my head. So he was upset that he didn't think <laughs> that about was it. the one thing he didn't write. <laughs> really cute. The last thing, they talk about Penny's storyline. And mm-hmm. I was really intrigued about what they had to say on this. They said, yes, Penny's storyline in a strange way is starting to move toward one of his storylines in the books. We certainly got him there in a different manner because on the show, Penny is a lot different than book Penny but his circumstances are starting to resemble the Penny in books more. And also the hierarchy of Fillory, the stuff that people who've read the books now know about how things work in Fillory. That just kind of comes to a head by the end of the season. I know that's all incredibly vague, but I don't want to spoil it. A lot of shit goes really bad in the season finale. So that kind of coincides with what I was saying when you were worried about the fact that they're only getting to book two now. Yes. And I said, they're probably just elongating it so they have more seasons. So the first part of the season was kind of like sprinkling in their own storylines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it certainly sounds like that. And there wasn't a lot of info on season three. They did ask him about it, but mm-hmm. they were really cryptic. 
Of course. As in, they could have all the time in the world, but nothing's sure yet. And I love the fact that he says it all gets crazy at the end. Shit goes really bad. Well, <laughs> it did last season, too, in this true. season finale, right? And I, I think there has to be a reference. All of the other episode titles are completely different. But 13, the last one, is We Have Brought You Little Cakes, which is a play on 13 from season one, Have You Brought Me Little Cakes. Oh, yeah. So maybe they're tying in with the title <laughs> as well that you're going to have a similar feel to things. And we're going to see... Ember himself. And what the hell he's been doing. Time for Clatcher's comments. I want to give a shout out to AppGrad22 for leaving us a review on our Magicians channel. He said many nice things, some of which I'll read here. Now, any show worth watching has a podcast, and CKC is my go-to. The Magicians, The Game of Thrones, and Westworld are ten times better for me because of this podcast. Oh, Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you for following us through with all these shows. And great to see two familiar names starting to chime in, finally, on The Magicians, Oren and Fanatically Correct. Where you been? (laughs) So shout out to them. Fanatically Correct said... In reference to us talking about we want the crew to be working together more. Mm -hmm. Why? (laughs) Why would they do that? Fog is completely and utterly useless, and Mayakovsky would use Penny as long as he could before he actually helped him. And then in reference to Julia, every time she's on screen, I wonder how Q could be best friends with her. (laughs) However, there was a footnote there that she's a little more bearable after watching episodes 10 and 11. Agreed. So he has less faith in Mayakovsky than we do. Yeah, well, we feel the same about Fog, but we're definitely more hopeful about Mayakovsky. But this is a common theme we're seeing with Julia. There is no in-between. You either love her or you hate her. Book Julia was the same way, and often both. You would flip back and forth, depending on how she was acting that day. Emily says regarding Julia, she's going to be a lot more powerful in this loop because she's experienced more pain. Agreed. And that's kind of related to what we were talking about last time. Is it better or worse for her? the way she's wound up here in this time loop. Regarding Penny, Melly said, maybe Penny got brainwashed when signing his contract with the library, and that's why he's not too pissed with them and also doesn't like Harriet. And we had sort of speculated on that idea, right, that they have some sort of hold over him that we don't realize yet. She also says Penny should have gone to Fogger Mayakovsky before signing a zillion-year contract, which (laughs) we have also said. Yes. And then we asked fans to chime in on the open verse closed knowledge conversation that we were having. Emily said, Dangerous sites today, with the exception of hacking, still require materials and time to achieve the negative end. Explosives, cameras, etc. But for our magicians, the spells are the materials, so an obstacle is removed. Since magic is linked across worlds via the wellspring, there are also infinite victims who could be affected by a disaster. In addition to the unknowing muggles in each of the worlds. I assume then the order decided protection was more important than open knowledge. Yeah, this is a sticky situation because I understand what she's saying, but it's the who gets to say who mm-hmm. has the ability to decide what we can know and what we can't know. Right. What gives that's them when the power. Gets, yeah, and that's when it gets a little fishy. And I, I definitely agree. I spoke on both sides of it this last time that normally I'd be a proponent of open knowledge 100%. But in this world, Mm -hmm. this fantasy creation we have, it seems as though there's a very good reason why they have done it. And I think we have to wait and see why the order was established. What are they protecting? Did something happen in the past that leads them to doing this? And who is really in charge? Mm. Is it the head librarian? Is somebody above her dictating that? For instance, if it was a god saying that, would we feel otherwise? 
do they have some sort of increased knowledge above us? Have they seen more in the past? Do they kind of know what's going to happen in the future? Maybe they are more fit to determine that than, let's say, our magicians who are stumbling around in the dark trying to get revenge on somebody, and they don't know the chaos they could unleash by opening this poison room. So, Clatchers, you can feel free to continue with that conversation if you like. I'm very interested to hear everyone's opinions on it. And finally, we had an email from our friend Lewis. <laughs> After watching 24 Magicians episodes and listening to 11 CKC podcasts, I have finally caught up with you guys. <laughs> yes, welcome on board. Overall, this show has been very entertaining. From Penny's brooding and sarcastic persona to Margot and Elliot's clever banter, it is something for everyone to enjoy. Now, I do have my issues with some aspects, one being the use of Martin Chatwin. He was by far the most charismatic character in the whole series, and I felt like he was defeated too soon. They could have done much more with his character, especially during his team-up with Julia. They really failed to build up the importance as to why he wanted to be in Fillory and why he turned evil in the first place. I don't want to get into detail on past episodes, but I think we needed more time with Martin and Jane, and hopefully we'll see them again during the series. I, I kind of agree because I talk all the time about how Martin was an excellent bad guy, but I do think they were stretching the limits <clears throat> because of the Julia plot. Right. And if they kept her and him together, that might have really dragged on. We were already getting a little bored with it. If they'd done more with him, maybe given a little more backstory, uh, he could have still been entertaining, I suppose, but we had a long time with the Beast. Well, I would have been interested in seeing flashbacks of him starting to become a powerful and evil magician like what made him that way yeah that would have been interesting more of his interactions in the past with jane mm, like he's exactly. saying you know how does that relate to her starting the time loop that could have been cool but i think now that we're looking at other iterations of the time loop that's not out of the question you might be right he says now with the current episodes i have to say break bills can't be the best school for magicians for the most part the faculty and staff are completely useless mm. although fog did start to help in episode 10 I can't help but think that Q and Julia would have been better off at Yale. <laughs> We've said that. Agreed. Speaking of Julia, I have a hard time getting into her character mainly because she has been inconsistent. She loses her shade in episode 8 and starts to become this badass that no longer has feelings. But by the start of episode 10, she's acting like she cares again. Question. She doesn't want Q to help her because he might get hurt and she doesn't want to give the dragon the button because she worries about Fillory? I've been frustrated about her development for a while, but I hope they get her and Q back on track with the others soon. I'm predicting they will all come together at some point to defeat the dragon in Fillory. Anyways, glad to be back on track with you guys. We've said the same thing. It's really yeah. never a matter of us hating Julia as a character. It's more how is she developed and written. And we, too, in this episode, talked a lot about how confused we were with what's going on with our emotions. And we'll just have to wait and see where they go with that for the remaining two episodes in this season. Uh, Jason, you're probably going to be upset with me putting this on air, but he also says, P.S., if you guys are taking suggestions for your next series, the new season of Doctor Who starts on April 15th. Just saying. Hmm. Not the first time we've yeah. talked about Doctor Who. Listen, I'm definitely a <laughs> Whovian, but I don't like Peter Capaldi. Yeah. Um, this is Moffat's last season. And then he's leaving. And so is Peter. And so is the new companion who we haven't met yet. Mm. So it's going to be a total change of guard. Although I will be watching it because I have to now forever. Um, I don't know if I'm going to enjoy it enough to create a podcast that is fun to listen to. I don't want to be like, uh, 
it's not what it used to be. And, but you know, I don't want to be negative Nancy. And that's how I feel too. The longer it goes on, the less I like what's happening there. Also, it's really difficult to come in so late. We experienced this with other podcasts. Take Sherlock, for instance. Yeah. And that was only three seasons. You can't not discuss anything from the past, but it's too difficult to try to cover all of it. And that leaves you in a very weird place jumping in on it. So I just, I think the logistics are really hard to work out, but we really don't know what show is coming next. So I'm not going to say anything is off the table. True. It's just unlikely. Speaking of what's coming next, on our Patreon page, we had asked our Clatchers, who are part of our Patreon, what this month's movie should be. So if you guys are listening, go ahead on there and give us some suggestions. You know, there's not anything crazy or really good out now in the theaters, unless there's something you guys really dig. But if you can't find that either, it could be a movie on Netflix or a movie, an older movie that we can definitely get our hands on. So let us know and and we'll be excited to pursue that. Also, definitely keep the suggestions coming in for next TV show. We're probably not going to have it be as soon as Magicians ends. There's a couple other things coming up for CKC. That's so right. So we're going to need a short break in order to accomplish that before we jump into the next show. But if you hear about something new coming out, particularly a new HBO series yeah. would be phenomenal. Um, but anything, we're open to those suggestions. So that's it for episode 11. If you're afraid of spoilers, we will see you next time. For everyone still here, episode 12 will be Ramifications. Julia, Katie, and Penny each make sacrifices to finally face Reynard. Quentin and Elliot learn a disturbing truth about Fillory. Elliot tells mm. Q he plans to conquer Fillory. We see it looks like the Lorians are coming to help fight. Nice. At least Princess. Well, if he is, they are. And we also see Josh addressing the council saying, okay, is anything not fucked? And we talked about how everybody's gone from Fillory now. So I don't know if Josh is going to be left trying to juggle these pieces, but apparently Elliot and Q do make their way back there or at least talk about it if they're planning to conquer Fillory and the Lorians are coming. So, I mean, that kind of quashes the whole what do we do without the button thing. But we still got to find out how they do that, which could be fun. Looking forward to it. What do you think the disturbing truth is about Fillory? Oh, boy, I don't know. This is going to get dark and mysterious. Listen, you think about that. And I'm going to ask you if you have any thoughts over the next week to post it on Twitter. I can't give my... You can't say shit. Well, I don't know for sure what it is, but I I do know vaguely where we're going. So I can't conjecture here. We'll catch you guys on Twitter during the week and on Patreon. Till next week, this round's on me. This round is on me. Queen of the Great Worms. What if I uh, needed to borrow it in the future, just super briefly? No. If you wish to return home, you must find other means. The first door remains open, little mammal. Great. Um, I super love riddles. Are you giving me the button or not? Your bodies will stay here and your souls will travel. You have 24 hours to return to the portal. 
Or I sit patiently waiting for you to come back. No, I eat you. I'm a fucking dragon. What do you expect? Great, good to know. Then it's settled. <coughs> Jeez, just a little warning this time. Really? Please hang up and try again.